Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For my second and third segments, Shannon Vasconcelos and I will be answering listener questions. Shannon and I, sorry, excuse me, Shannon is a college finance consultant here at College Coach and former financial aid officer at Boston University of University. But first, I'm, welp- I'm welcoming Abigail Anderson, college admissions consultant here at College Coach and former admission officer at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. She and I will be discussing what your list should look like during the regular decision admission process. Welcome, Abigail. Hi, Sally. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming on here. I really appreciate it. Um, all right, Abigail, so I'm guessing that you're like me, that most of your students submitted at least some early applications, but what should they be thinking about now? Um, you know, like what's the next step? I mean, obviously it's regular decision applications if they have any um, kind of left to go. Left to go. So what should their list look like at this point? Yep, I, I'm just like you. I definitely have students who submitted a, quite a few early applications, and I think everybody's first instinct is to just take a deep breath and want to take a couple of weeks off and maybe fill up on turkey and pie and, you know, all the treats that the holidays bring us. But even if you've applied somewhere early, whether it's early action, early decision, or even in a rolling admission process, this is really not the time to take a breather. (laughs) This is really the time to kind of buckle down and continue working just as hard as you worked on your early applications on your as on your regular applications. So my students, um, and I'm sure you do the same with yours, Sally, I think we all at College Coach follow a pretty similar set of guidelines because we found them to work. Um, my students will all apply to at least two no-problem and three just-right schools in their regular application list. So now is the time to really be just chipping away at the essays or even the extra application forms that come along with completing and submitting those next batch of applications. Mm -hmm. So ideally, I mean, let's talk about the ideal situation. The ideal situation is, is one in which... It sounds like a student maybe set their list, you know, months ago, got their earlies done, and now is just working on the regulars that they decided to apply to maybe all the way back in August. Yes. And I think you and I are both thinking the same thing, which is that's the ideal situation, but that's honestly not the most realistic <laughs> situation for most families or students. Many families and students at this time are thinking, okay, I figured out where I really want to apply to early, and I'm still trying to shape up or create that regular decision list. Um, and that's that's also perfectly okay. It, it can take a longer time to decide where you want to apply, and not all students have the perfect list formed in August. 
Sometimes even the students who have that perfect list form in August, as you know, Sally, they'll change their mind um, and they'll make, you know, adjustments to the list over the course of the fall, maybe as they visit more schools or more college reps visit their high schools, or perhaps even we discussed this a little bit earlier in the week based on the decisions that they get back in an early application round. Mm-hmm. I agree. I do want to put in a plug, though, for any juniors that might be listening, that ideally you want to have those mostly done and you're just tinkering around the edges because yes. you've gained more information. You're, what I've seen occasionally back in the past is, is families or students that spend so much time thinking about their early decision application that they actually don't even really have a list. You know, it's like early decision to Brown and then, you know, uh, an early application into the local state school, and then that's it. So that I'm not recommending. I want to come down really strongly that you should have more prep than that done. And I I totally agree with you. And it truly is. The goal is to have your list set. But we know that there are instances where it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're you're totally right. The, the ideal goal is know your list so that you can be prepared and working mm-hmm the moment those applications go in on the rest of your regular applications. Mm -hmm. When they're thinking about their regular decision applications, do those applications depend to a certain degree on where they applied early? I mean, you already mentioned a balanced list, so let's kind of flesh that out. Like what's like a good early list um, maybe look like, and then what might, you know, like how, how does the early list influence the regular list potentially? Well, I always, I, I think we all have our own way of thinking about this. I always start with the full list of everywhere the student wants to apply, and this comes back to your advice, which, it, which is it's really helpful to know the full list of where you want to apply. And then if there are clear standouts, top choices, um, those might be your early decision, or that might be your early decision application because you can only have one. Um, early action is great. If you are on top of your list and you're prepared to submit by that earlier deadline, you could apply to as many as you want. And I have quite a few students who applied to, you know, eight schools total, and four of those schools had early action deadlines, and they submitted for those early action deadlines because they're non-binding and their work was done, and they alleviated a lot of stress by putting that application out the door and not having it sitting on their desk anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But many students do use early decision to help them at more of a reach school. And that's definitely something that we will counsel students on if they have a clear top choice that offers early decision. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's a student, though, who's who's been a little less organized. Like a few years back, I had a student who... You know, his focus was Duke, and he was actually such a strong student that I really, I was like, look, your odds are really good here, um, especially for someone applying to Duke, but you never get to count on Duke. It just, it's just not a school that you can just say, mm-hmm. I'm definitely getting into. So because he was applying to an early school that was pretty, pretty reachy, you know, it was going to be challenging to get into, I said, the rest of your list then needs to have a decent number of safeties. Right. So, you know, how yep. do you sort of think about that? I think that's I think that's a great plan. I I I think the 
for me personally, what I'm comfortable advising families in and what I always say to parents, and I, I, I think a lot of our colleagues feel the same way, Sally, is, you know, it's our job to be the realists and to be really transparent about odds in the process. And I think you need at least two safeties and two, or excuse me, two safeties and three to four just right schools. And then hopefully that gives you lots of choices come March, no matter what happens with the rest of your list. If that was one challenging early decision school or two challenging regular decision schools, I think those numbers, two no problems, three to four just rights can really help you create a better spring with more positive uh, letters and decisions coming back your way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes back to it. In some ways, it doesn't matter if it's regular or early. You need to develop yeah. a list. And then if you can apply to those schools early action, you know, early decision is obviously an option, but you need to be more careful with it. But if you can mm-hmm. apply to those schools early action, you should probably go for it, especially the state schools is what I always advise. And then um, so so it's but it really comes down to a balanced list, whether we're talking regular or uh, early. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then one other thing we talked about was, or we'll talk about with families, I should say, is what happens if you get back that early decision? You know, your student, for example, who applied to Duke, what if he hadn't gotten in? Do you adjust your regular decision list based on that, or do you keep it the same? Um, And my advice would be for your student, and I think we talked about this is no, we always knew Duke would be a reach. It's a reach for pretty much anybody out there. It's a tough school to get into. Are we totally surprised by a deny in early decision? Probably not. If we're being really realistic about anybody's odds of getting into a challenging school like Duke. Um, and if the rest of your list was balanced to begin with, with the appropriate number of no problems and just rights, your list should stay the same. And you shouldn't panic. And I think sometimes as the result of panic, we see those kind of willy-nilly crazy applications happen where there's no thought behind them, they're not well completed, um, and admissions officers can kind of smell that on an application. So those aren't worth panic submitting either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I will say there's one situation in which it makes sense to change your list. I had some great news from a student of mine recently. She uh, she had already been admitted to University of South Carolina. She was so excited. It was uh, not her top choice school, but it was definitely up there. I mean, just absolutely one she was thrilled about. And so as a result of that, she said, you know, I think I'm going to take some schools off my list because I know I would go to Carolina over them. And I said, that's exactly what you should be doing. From here on out, every college that you apply to, um, you need to like it more than University of South Carolina, because what's the point otherwise? Totally. I love that your student was mature enough to think of it that way. It's not, we're not just trying to grab trophies here and be able to name everywhere we got in. It's really about where do you want to go. And if you've gotten into a school you're genuinely excited about, not only save yourself the what, you know, fifty to seventy five dollar application fee for the other schools that you like less, 
save yourself all that time <laughs> as well. I love that your student did that. I know. I was so thrilled, like you said. I mean, she was a very mature kid, so I wasn't surprised. Yeah. But I loved it that she actually brought it up herself. I didn't even have to bring it up with her. She she brought it up herself. So, How all right. Cool. So I, I do want to ask one last question because I got a call about this. Um, you know, there, there was this one family where they really hadn't done anything. And so they were panicking. And, you know, honestly, it's it is a little late to get started on everything. But, you know, she was just interested in local state university. So I looked up at the local state university um, deadline and it wasn't until um, January 31st. So I said, you know, community college can always be a backup because that's what they said. They were mm-hmm. like, should she just apply to community college? I was like, that's always going to be there for you, which is great. But you have, you know, a, you have a couple months, really, to get this application in. You actually have two and a half months. So at least apply to your local state school if she's interested in a four-year college. If she'd rather go to a community college, I think that's fine. But I just want to put in that plug that it's not too late. Absolutely. And a lot of private schools have later deadlines, too. I have a few schools that... Um, or students that I'm working on on their list right now, and they have private schools on their list with February 1st deadlines or January 31st, like you said. It's, it's not unheard of. And um, there is a great tool. If, you're, if you've already completed the Common Application, uh, you can search by deadline in the Common Application College Search Tool. So if you're looking for schools with later deadlines, that's absolutely something you can filter by and give yourself a little bit more breathing room as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was really like, I, I think, I hope I managed to talk this particular father off a roof because he was really like, we're just going to do the community college. And I thought, then why are you on the phone with me? So right. I think I was able to get up. I said, look, they have an open house in a couple weeks. Go to that. Take your daughter there is time. It is not too late. <laughs> so, no, it is right. absolutely not. All right. All right. Thank you so much, Abigail. Okay, everyone. No, we're gonna thank take you, a sh- Sally. Oh, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a <laughs> short break, but when we get back, I'll be answering listener questions on admission and financial aid topics with Shannon Vasconcelos. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? 
Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, now Shannon Vasconcelos and I will be answering listener questions. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Sally. Hi. So, Shannon, um, we've done listener questions before, but this one is a little bit different, right? Can you explain how this one's a little different? Yeah. So, we just ran on our Facebook page a contest. It just wrapped up, so sorry, folks, if you weren't aware of it. Too late to enter this particular contest, but we'll, we'll run some more later. Um, but the theme of this contest was fact or fiction, and we had our Facebook followers submit to us Uh, things that they had heard about the college admissions or finance processes, uh, you know, that they weren't quite sure about. They weren't sure, you know, they'd heard these rumors. Should they believe them? Should they not? Um, So they submitted these, what they had heard to us. And then um, myself and our colleague, Christine Kenyon, did a Facebook Live event. Um, And you can find that video on our Facebook page if you want to go back and take a look at that where we went through all of these statements that people had heard about college admissions and either confirmed that they were correct uh, or kind of debunked the myths and kind of explained what was going on there. Uh, and we had, um, you know, really things could fall into three categories. Either it was fact, it was fiction, or it was complicated. It was somewhere in between, um, which I think probably most of these statements fall into. They have maybe some kernel of truth. (laughs) They're based on something, but then they get misconstrued. They get, um, you know, kind of applied universally when they really don't apply universally. So that's what this contest was about. And we got so many awesome submissions that even though we did an hour-long Facebook video to to take them on, we didn't get through them all. And there were so many good either truths or myths that, that were submitted that we wanted to make sure that, that we addressed all of them. So we thought that we would address the ones we didn't get to on our Facebook event um, here during this segment. 
Okay, I think that sounds perfect. So why not? Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, the Facebook event was really fun, and I think this will be really fun. We've got a lot of good um, facts and fictions here, and there are a lot of, you know, kind of myths that that Sally, you and I probably hear all the time. There were also some new ones to me. So so this, I was I was excited to hear what Christine said um, the other day. I'm excited to hear what you say about some of these now. So should we dig right in? Yeah, let's dig right in. Why don't you start by reading... Uh, one of the admissions uh, factor fictions. Perfect. Um, so Magna said that she has heard, if you are a legacy, you should contact the alumni office to talk to their admissions liaison. Is that fact or fiction? So there's. It, this is one of those things that's, there's kind of a kernel of truth in that. Right. Um, in some cases, that might be relevant, but it, l- let me dive into it. If you're just a legacy, um, if you've graduated, but you haven't donated a couple million dollars, and I'm really like for a highly selective college, I'm quite literally talking about a few million. I mean, if you give 100000 that's not moving the needle at Harvard. Their endowment is so large that to them, that's that's like, I just gave you a dollar and asked you to do something <laughs> for me. It's not going to influence your behavior. So... Um, so really, like, if you are a major donor, if you're an influential trustee, you know, if there's some kind of, like, you, you play some sort of major role, you didn't just graduate and donate a little, you really have been influential in the college. And, and also, I want to be clear, just being an alum interviewer is not enough to move the needle. Right. Certainly, you know, so we're really talking a major donor. In that situation... Um, you know, then yes, get in touch with your liaison. Uh, probably it's actually the development office. Usually alumni affairs are subsumed under development. And um, that person will then, yes, get in touch with admissions for you. Um, you know, if, I, if like when I worked at University of Chicago, if I got a call from an alum who was like, I'm very important and I have donated a lot of money, I would have been like, please go away. I don't know who you are. You know, but I mean, it just doesn't work that way. But yes, if someone, you know, we knew that we had to pay attention. It didn't mean I want to be clear, by the way, it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get in. But it does mean that we know that a lot of people are interested in this particular student. So so, yes, there's a grain of truth to this. But just unfortunately, be aware that if you're a graduate who's donated not a huge amount, you should just apply, put your child's name down on the application, and then if that school does give preferential treatment to legacy, you will get it automatically, but you won't get the kind of dramatic extra attention that, you know, we discussed that major donors get. Right. My, my $100,000 donation's getting me nowhere? I am sorry, but they are not. <laughs> they really are not. I mean, actually, the fun, the ironic thing is, or the sad thing is that that might make a difference at a school where you don't need to have that kind of influence, right? Like at some of the poorer schools, right, right, it's pretty sure. relatively easy to get into those schools anyway, yep. you know, so... Um, but yeah, sorry about that, Shannon. I know you're rolling in it, so you Darn. can donate that much. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. So I have a question for you from Kirsten. Um, and this one is that there is no reason to apply for other scholarships because it will just lower the value of scholarships you already have. So I will say that this one is mostly fiction. Again, a kernel of truth in there. So in terms of 
Um, if you have been awarded merit scholarships by the college, usually any outside scholarships that you're able to track down have absolutely no effect on merit scholarships that you're awarded by the college. What it, they can have an effect on is need-based financial aid. Um, schools are required to incorporate outside private scholarships as part of a financial aid package. So if by chance a college already awarded you your maximum financial aid eligibility entirely with grant money, then it doesn't help you to pull it in a private scholarship because they would just have to reduce grant money that they've awarded you accordingly. But I will tell you that that rarely happens. Usually, um, number one, you might not qualify for financial aid at all, in which case the private scholarship certainly helps you if you don't have any need-based aid. If your financial aid package did not meet your full need, which they often don't, if your financial aid package includes student loans, which they almost always do, those are all instances where winning a private scholarship helps you, and they don't have to reduce existing grant. I actually wrote a blog post about this exact question, so for I don't want to you know, dig too deeply into the weeds, but if you go to our blog, which is blog.getintocollege.com, um, the blog title is, I just looked it up, Will Winning a Scholarship Cause Me to Lose Financial Aid? So just search for that, and it will give you all the details. But I will say, in almost all cases, it is worthwhile to pursue those private scholarships. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Okay, so next statement for you. Um, and Zaina says, this was a, is a new one that she's heard. It's also a new one for me, so I'm curious what you have to say about this, Sally. Um, she has heard that if you're going to be interviewing for a very selective university, you should not show your academic competitive, your competitive academic drive to the interviewer because they are looking for collaborative, not competitive students. What say you, Sally, on this one? I mean, I think this is one where there's a grain of truth. Um, It doesn't mean, I want to be clear that academic drive is a good thing, right? But competitive, like Mm -hmm. if I was, and again, I'm going to talk about Chicago again, because that's my experience at a highly selective school. If I was talking to um, a top student where it was all about beating his fellow students, I would be... Mm really not so impressed with that. Whereas if that student said, you know what, like I learned so much from tutoring my fellow students that I came up with an idea to, um, you know, form studying groups and I implemented that, then that, that shows like a way of, you know, this is the kid who's driven, who's driven to make a difference, but his drive is to help everybody else rise closer to his level. So, I mean, I think on an fundamental level students need to be true to themselves whoever they are and it's usually doesn't come across very like usually if students are trying to fake it it doesn't come across very well so what I would say in terms of advice is do highlight that collaborative side of yourself but also highlight your academic drive but probably yeah this isn't like it's probably not going to help you if you're like, I totally wasted everybody else in my class, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Like, they, I left them in my desk, you know, like that. It's true. That's not, you know, by itself um, going to help. You certainly can be proud in your accomplishments, though. And I do want to stress that. Right. That makes sense. Perfect. Okay. All right. So we have an interesting name here, TikTok. Um, Love it. <laughs> 
I know. TikTok wants to know, um, or their their comment is, some colleges are need aware, um, and it says, don't even apply to waste your application money if you are planning to file FAFSA. Honestly, I think even I can answer that, but I'm going to let you, you do absolutely it. Could. <laughs> <laughs> Probably better than me, but I will give it a shot, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm going to say... Um, fiction uh, for colleges. So for folks who, who might not be familiar with the terms, colleges can either be need blind, which means they are guaranteeing you the fact that you may or may not need financial aid to attend will have no effect on your admissions decision. Um, colleges that are need aware don't make that guarantee. So it is possible that the fact that you don't need any financial aid could prove advantageous in the admissions process or the fact that you do need uh, financial aid could be seen as a disadvantage. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Sally, but from everything I have heard from talking to many, many of our colleagues here at College Coach who have worked at you know, dozens and dozens of different colleges, some of them need aware, the, that financial piece, whether or not you may need financial aid, actually rarely enters the picture at most colleges. Most students are, you know, accepted or denied based really on their own academic record, uh, and it is for a small fraction um, of admits where um, the fact that you may or may not need financial aid may um, be an advantage or disadvantage in the process. There are no colleges, at least that I'm aware of, that are need aware for every admission for every person that they accept. They're not accepting anybody who needs financial aid. That would be insane. They would have no no students because almost everybody needs some financial aid. Um, Exactly. So if you need financial aid, apply for it. You know, come what may in terms of the admissions decision. And it certainly is not a waste of, you know, an application fee to apply to a need-aware school because in all likelihood, the fact that you may or may not need financial aid is not going to enter uh, the equation for your admission decision. It does for a certain percentage, but it's a small percentage. I don't know if there are official numbers out there, but I've heard numbers like maybe for 1%, for 2%, for maybe at most like 10% of students where the finances might enter the equation. think mm-hmm. I've got all that accurate, Sally. Is there anything that you would add? I would just say, because I know we have some international listeners, that it does mm-hmm. at most... I think MIT is the only exception that I know for sure. International students are evaluated the same as everyone else. But like even at Chicago, we did look at need. I don't know if they do now. I was there years ago. But like we did not consider need in any way, shape or form uh, for the rest of of our students. Like not even when it came to the wait list, which was awesome. Because I'd worked at another school that is now need aware. But back when I was there, it was need blind. And uh, we considered it just for the wait list. Um, so mm-hmm. I think, I mean, basically, I think if you need aid, you have to apply for it. I would crunch yeah. the numbers if you're probably not going to get any anyway, then maybe this would factor in. But yeah, generally exactly. speaking, we're talking about anywhere from 1% to 10% of the yeah. bottom of the class of the students being admitted. So yeah. it really like, if you need money, you need to apply for it is the way I look at it. Exactly. Totally agree. All mm-hmm. right. So our next factor efficient fiction, Rebecca has heard that asking about disability support lowers your child's chances of getting accepted. Yeah, this is another complicated one. Um, Okay, under the ADA, um, that's completely illegal, right? So I want to be absolutely clear. Um, That being said, most colleges are not actually going to factor in whether your kid has a disability 
um, into the admission process. So I always tell students, unless there's a good reason to do so. So I always tell people, just in case there's someone with the bias, because you can't control you know, the law and, you know, people's individual biases cannot always be controlled for. So my advice to people is always disclose only if there's a reason to do so. And the exam, and then usually that's actually going to really turn out well in the, um, in the student's favor. I mean, I had a student who really got pretty, pretty weak grades, um, compared to the really how smart he was and where he ended up going to college. He was kind of like a BC student in uh, ninth and 10th grade. And then he was finally, you know, his teachers were like, this kid is really smart, but he's got ADD. Like we need to do something about it. But his parents were really resistant. They were sort of old fashioned. They're like, no, he just has to study more, you know? And Uh so finally, finally they realized that like, this was just, he was really trying hard. This was a great kid. who was truly trying his hardest. And they finally allowed him to get tested. And, um, And yeah, lo and behold, he had it, just like his teachers thought. Once he got the appropriate treatment, right, like the appropriate assistance, learned ways to manage things, um, his grades shot up to A's. He became an A student and he ended up... And he ended up getting into USC and, you know, University of Southern California, which was amazing, right? For a student who, I mean, by his GPA, he would have never gotten in, but he got great test scores. And really, like, we were able to sort of tell the story. This was a kid who, once he got it figured out, like, this is really who he is. And so the college took it into account. So I want to say, if you've got that kind of a story to tell of grades that have increased dramatically, um, something like that, then absolutely disclose. If you don't have anything like that, then I would not disclose. That being said, you should still, when you visit colleges, go talk to the offices of disability services because they're not going to report to the admission office. That's not how it works. And I also want to mention that there is the occasional school. I recently, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at Hofstra University, excellent school on Long Island. They have an incredible office, um, you know, support services for students with learning disabilities. And they actually said, in some cases, a student who might be a little weak for Hofstra's profile, but where the, you know, the head of the office of, of um, you know, for students with learning disabilities, if she, if she felt like she could help that student, she could actually get in touch with the admission office and advocate for that student. So wow. always, always talk to the offices that are going to support your child because the worst case scenario is they'll say, this is what we can provide. No, we can't help with the admission office. The best case scenario, which I do want to say is rare, is that they might even be able to advocate for you. Perfect. Great. All right, great. So, um, okay, so Diana has heard that you are required to buy a meal plan. So I would say this is fact at some schools. There are, uh, but certainly not all schools. Um, There are some schools that do require their freshman students to live on campus, and when they have that living on campus requirement, sometimes what goes along with it is a requirement to buy a meal plan. Um, now, sometimes you have some choice in terms of that, that meal plan where maybe the default option is, you know, three meals a day in the cafeteria, but, you know, if your child has never once woken up on time for breakfast, maybe you can reduce that to the two meals a day plan. Um, so, yeah, so again, so, so some schools will require it, other schools will not. I think even at the schools requ- that require 
both, you know, the freshmen to live on campus and require the meal plan. I believe that there will always be, you know, an appeal process if you have some special circumstances that would um, make that difficult for you, if you have some special dietary needs that are not served by the, the campus dining halls, you can probably appeal to, to get out of that requirement. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to take a break now. So thanks so much, Shannon. And um, everyone will continue answering listener questions when we return. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Would you like to be the change you see needed in the world? Are you ready to make a difference? If so, tune in to Voice for Truth with host Sharon Wyckoff. Every show will be filled with inspiring content to support you in recognizing your greatness. Guests will share their expertise. Young people will tell how they are making a difference. You too can be a voice for truth. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Let's go ahead and keep going. Perfect. So the next... um question is from Jill, and she says that her daughter is taking the ACT, not the SAT, but she wants to sit for SAT subject tests um, for the AP courses that she took, Um, but she heard that she may not be able to, or maybe she shouldn't, if she's not taking the SAT. Um, Is that true? 
So that is completely false. It's kind of nice to answer a question that's just totally false. Like, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> where I can just be really clear. You absolutely can take the ACT and then also take SAT subject tests. Um, it's not a problem at all. And in fact, if a student is applying to schools that, requ that require or recommend subject tests, I absolutely you need to do that. Um, the one thing I would mention is that there are a few schools that recommend subject tests if you take the SAT, but if you're taking the ACT, you don't need them. But those are not the majority of the schools. So absolutely, you're doing exactly the right thing. Take the ACT if it's the right test for you, but also take the SAT subject tests. And taking them in the areas where you're taking AP courses is a great idea because you're likely to do really well in those tests in many cases. So that's it. Pretty clear. Yay. Love it. Yay. All right. So... Um, Kelly said that she has heard that colleges look at the order you list the schools on your FAFSA, and if they aren't your top choice, your chances of being accepted go down. Another clear one, this is absolutely fiction, um, because the colleges you submit your FAFSA to cannot see the other schools that you have listed on your FAFSA. This, so this comes out of... Um, the fact that a few years ago, this was not the case. A few years ago, colleges could see the other schools that you had listed on your FAFSA, and it came out that, I, I don't believe this is ever a widespread practice, but it came out that a couple schools might have been using your list of schools in a potentially unethical way. They were drawing inferences from the order of schools if they were listed last on your FAFSA, they, they thought that that implied that they were your last choice, you weren't going to enroll, so maybe they would just not accept you, even though you, meet, you, know, you met every requirement of the school, you were otherwise acceptable, they would not accept you because they thought you were not going to come anyway, and that would hurt their yield, blah, 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 blah. So this all happened a few years ago, a couple of schools were caught kind of doing this, and in response to that, the government removed the ability to see the list of schools on the FAFSA, so colleges cannot hold the order the schools are listed against you in any way because they can't see the order. So you're safe okay. there, Kelly. Don't worry about it. That is good news, definitely. Yeah. So Bryce and Diane, it looks like a joint Facebook account, say, I have heard you no longer need a class rank. And worse yet, according to Bryce and Diane, uh, it will be normal in the next three years to accept standards-based grading, which I don't know what that is, but I'm hoping you do, Sally. Oh, my goodness. I just realized that that is something that I have heard, but I do yeah. not know what it is. I should have looked over these questions before I started, but at <laughs> least I just glanced over them and only saw the class rank bit. So maybe we'll come back to the standards-based grading on another listener yeah. question. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, um, you do not need class rank. And it's funny because Bryce and Diane seem very upset about this. They think that not needing class rank is a really bad thing. And I want to stress that at, you know, at some, um, I will say that there's plenty of high school where I actually think it's much better for the high school students. Um, if the high school does not provide class rank. And the reason is, if your student is going to a really, really competitive high school, um, you know, colleges in general prefer to be able to report that the students they're accepting are, are ranked highly in the class. But if your mm -hmm. kid's going to a super competitive high school like Stuyvesant in New York or 
Phillips Exeter or, or even like, let's say the most competitive suburban school, you know, in your district, you know, it can be really tough to be in the top 10%. I mean, you, you know, and, and yeah. so actually you can have a really great student who's in the top 30%, but colleges with rank, if they're keeping their eye on, you know, how it's going to look to, um, U.S. News and World Report or some of these other places that look at ranking, they accept your student um, out of yeah. just based on a number that doesn't take full account of the context. So I think not reporting rank is actually usually in really helps the student. I mean, colleges right. might complain about it because it makes their job harder, but um, but it is actually probably better for your student. Now, let's say your student is at the very top of the class and this is why you're annoyed. I can promise you as a former high school counselor that rank or no rank, the colleges still knew who the best students in the class were. That was not an issue. And even if colleges um, didn't provide official rank, you know, they would the counselor recommendation form, it's uh, the secondary right. school report, they even ask you to sort of rank the level of the student on these kind of based on these little boxes that they check, like one of best ever, one of best this year, you know, that sort of thing. So there are other ways that college counselors can communicate that your child is exceptional beyond just rank. So really don't see this as a negative because I really think that in most cases, it's absolutely a positive. Perfect. Okay, great. And like I said, we'll we'll come back to uh, to this other question. We'll inform ourselves on it and let Perfect. you know if it's actually bad news. I kind of doubt right. it. Be, one of one of the things that I want to reassure people about is that whatever um, innovations high schools make, colleges tend to adapt to it, and it doesn't tend to end up being the crisis that everybody thinks it will be. I mean, everybody was freaking out a couple years ago about the new SAT scores. It didn't really impact which students got in and which students didn't. Right. You know, I mean, colleges know how to interpret new data. So you don't need to be concerned about these things. Right. Um, all right. So Shannon, Adele heard or her kind of question is what year of income will we submit for twins starting in 2019? It will be, Adele, it'll be 2017. Um, the, the FAFSA, the financial aid applications, always look at your income from two years prior to the year you're applying for aid for. So if you've got high school juniors who will be starting college in 2019, they're going to look at your 2017 income. That's what the financial aid will be based upon by default. If that 2017 income is not reflective of your future income, uh, for some reason, you know, most commonly you've lost your job since 2017, or maybe you had some unusual you know, capital gain or something in 2017 that's not going to be repeated in future years. Um, if, if whatever year of income they're looking at, if that's unusually high for you, you can appeal to the aid offices and ask them to consider your current income. They don't have to, but they can at their discretion. But by default, barring any kind of special circumstances, it's going to be the year two years prior to the year you're applying for aid for. So for Adele, whose kids are starting in 2019, that will be this year, 2017. Mm -hmm. All right, okay. great. Very All helpful, right. very clear. No, it's complicated yes. there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All righty, so... To look at the next admissions statement, oh, we're, we're about to get controversial. I'm going to use the words affirmative action, which 
people seem to have very strong opinions on, on both sides of the argument. But this question is about affirmative action. And Megan says that she has heard that because her son is Hispanic and black, he might be selected over someone more qualified because of affirmative action programs. Fact or fiction, or I'm going to guess, Sally, it's complicated. It's complicated indeed. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, when you look into these, I always think it's, I'm just going to, I'm going to take a smile diversion for a moment. Everyone seems to be fine with the fact that legacy gets a boost in admissions and yet affirmative action, they say, oh, well, this person's less qualified. But I don't hear people saying that about legacy, right? But essentially, it's kind of a similar situation. What happens is everybody who's admitted to a college is qualified. You do not admit someone who is not qualified, Right. Like, but what happens is that we've got all these colleges that admit, I mean, really colleges that admit 60% or fewer of the students who apply um, easily can find enough students who are qualified to be there. That's, that's not a problem. So actually what they're having to do is they're having to make some very tough decisions between qualified applicants. So all these applicants have the great grades. They've got the great test scores. So what they're doing is they're making these very kind of like thoughtful decisions about how they want to construct a class. Right. Like, do they want geographic diversity? Is that a priority? Do they want a strong group of legacy admissions? Um, yep. You know, because they know that that can build students, you know, school spirit. Do they want, you know, so in other words, just for those of you who don't know what legacy is, what that means is if your parents went there, you um, have a little bit better of a chance of getting in because they feel that it builds community. Uh, recruited athletes. Recruited athletes can major leg up in terms of getting in because of the uh, remarkable talent that they bring on the athletic field. They still have to be qualified to get in, but academically, they can definitely be much less um, competitive would be the word, right? Mm -hmm. So again, you always have to be qualified, but it is true that like those other categories that I mentioned, being black or Hispanic or both, can some can put you into a special category of in terms of this is a, a person that is going to bring some diversity to our school and that's an institutional priority in the same way that bringing in legacies is an institutional priority bringing in um, athletes is an institutional priority right or like at certain schools maybe the musical theater you know I worked with a young yeah. woman who's in musical theater, her musical theater talent was remarkable academically. She was really skipping the bottom for this school. She still got in because her talent was so great. So think of it like that. The idea is that they might, they're not going to get a more qualified candidate, but they might get it over a candidate who is more competitive in the traditional ways academically. They might have higher GPA, they might have higher test score, but that person looks like so many other people in the pool, they're not gonna add to that diversity, they're not gonna meet one of the institutional priorities. Um, right. So I also wanna say very clearly that that being said, um, African-American and Latino students are still underrepresented at our most selective colleges and universities, even when you take into account top African-American and Latino students at high school. So um, really, this preference is not a significant preference. If you look at the studies, um, you know, they are not this preferential, this mild little bit of... Um, you know, preferential treatment and admissions is not making up for the fact that they're not actually being encouraged to apply to colleges that they really are are competitive for. 
in the same right. way that white students are. For whatever reason, this is absolutely true. Um, right. So, so anyway, now that I feel... Sorry, I was just Sorry go the ahead. disadvantages still outweigh the perhaps limited advantage in the admissions process. Exactly. And a limited advantage does not outweigh being an athlete or all these other things that I mentioned. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's go on to the next one um, for you. So Adele has another question. She yeah. said, if, if we live in Connecticut, would it be more likely my kids would get merit aid out of state um, and further away? And then state or private schools give more merit. And just so you know, we only have like two, like one minute for this, a minute and a half. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll make it short and sweet. Um, so to answer the second part, does state or private give more merit? You know, I would say on average, if you're a betting person, private schools tend to give more merit scholarships. Um, they just have more money to play with. Um, doesn't is not the case in every single circumstance. But on average, you would expect more higher scholarship from a private school than a state school. Um, but it, what it really depends on is are you applying to schools where you are above average and where you're going to stand out? And the other thing is even if a private school gives more merit aid, is it enough to make it less expensive than a state school? In most circumstances, no. There are certainly, again, some exceptions to that rule, but usually not. Um, and, you know, saying, will she get more merit aid out of state? Um, it, it depends, and it, the answer to so many of these questions is, is it depends. Again, are you an above-average candidate at that out-of-state school, as opposed to maybe you can just barely get into your state school? You, you, she said she lives in Connecticut. UConn is a very competitive school. Maybe she can barely get into UConn and likely won't see merit scholarship, but there might be another state school out there in another state um, where where um, her kids might be well above average, and that's what's really determining uh, whether or not you're offered merit scholarships. Um, now, there has been, you know, kind of a trend lately of uh, state schools offering more merit scholarships to out-of-state students to try to kind of lure them in and get them to pay that higher out-of-state tuition. Um, another one of those institutional priorities that state schools have is they need more out-of-state students who are going to kind of put a higher portion of the bill. So that is an increasing trend of out-of-state students getting more scholarships. Though, again, is the scholarship going to be high enough that it makes it the school less expensive than your own state school? In some cases, yes, but I would say more often than not, no. Your own in-state public school is still going to be the, the least expensive option for you in most cases. Okay, great. All right, well, thanks so much, Shannon. You are very welcome. This was fun. Yeah. And then uh, thank you, Abigail, for being my guest today. Now I want to tell you about our shows next week. Um, or sorry, just one show hosted by my colleague, Beth Heaton. This will be a great show as she'll be interviewing Maria Furtado, Executive Director of Colleges That Change Lives. That's an organization that champions the cause of helping students find the college that's the right fit, you know, looking past the hype, the prestige hype. And it's all based around Lauren Pope's book, Colleges That Change Lives. Um, I love this book partially because I went to one of the colleges on the list. So, um, so I do have a, a special fondness for it. Um, other topics include what to expect as you hear back from your early action and early decision colleges. And also you'll get a little insider's view of the St. Olaf Financial Aid Office. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is, access is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, 
And you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find last week's show on understanding net price calculators and whether senior year grades really matter. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free for you to do. And last, don't forget that we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music.